Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let me pray for just a second. God, I thank you for all the folks who are gathered here tonight. Thank you for the fact that we have an interest in thinking for a few minutes about what you have done in sending Jesus into the world. We're grateful that he has come. We're grateful that you have unfolded your plan in this very surprising way, that you took the risks that you did in sending him to this very poor family and kind of an isolated little village at just the right time. Lord, I pray that tonight you would allow us to understand a bit more and maybe even to have some kind of spiritual breakthrough in each of our lives at just the right time in order to see what you are doing in our hearts and our minds and all around us. Guide us in this time as we worship Jesus, as we try to understand a little bit more about how your word applies to us and our situations. Thank you for every person here and for your love for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on, the, on September 8th of this year, a long-anticipated event occurred. The United Kingdom's Queen Elizabeth, who reigned for an unprecedented 70 years, died, and her son, Prince Charles, the long-awaited heir to the throne, became king. On that day, and for several after, the world remembered Queen Elizabeth. And the adoring response from around the world was rather amazing to watch. For years, the press had speculated about how long she would reign and about whether she would even abdicate in her old age in favor of her son. And then it happened. And on the same day the queen passed from this life, King Charles began his reign at 73, the oldest king to accede to the British throne. All England and much of the world wondered what kind of king Charles would turn out to be. Would he rule in the same way that his mother did for so long, or would he be a different kind of king? Little by little, that story 
is unfolding and will be unfolding for the next several years. That thought ties into the, thop- the topic I would like to address with you tonight. When Jesus was born into this world and the Magi from the East went to look for him, some people were already asking, what kind of king will this be? Tonight our topic is a different kind of king. And the question that I have running through my mind as I was preparing and even tonight as I'm talking to you is does, Christmas, does the Christmas story indicate how we should regard Jesus the King? I'd like to present to you three ways in which Jesus is a different kind of king. Here's the first. He threatens the self-interested. So it's interesting in verse 3 here of Matthew chapter 2, it says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. On the day before the Magi arrived, King Herod's life was comfortable. Herod, the king known to history as Herod the Great, actually was a real piece of work. He was the son of a high-ranking official with mixed heritage that was Edomite and Jewish, while his mother was an Arab princess from a region now known as Jordan. So while, while raised in Judaism, he was also Arab on both sides. He was a confusing king for that period of time. His father was well-connected. He had cultivated a good relationship with Julius Caesar, which led to Herod's appointment as the client king of Judea. Result was that Herod, in effect, was Caesar's man in Israel, and he did Caesar's bidding. He'd been named king in his mid-20s, and he ended up having about a 45-year reign. He focused a lot on building. He, he built and, uh, and the temple in Jerusalem, the newer temple, and, and built fortresses in different places and palaces and port cities. He had Rome's backing and he figured out how to keep the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two very affluent and powerful sects of Jewish people, in check. So with all this going for him, all this building, all this wealth, all this political connectedness, Why was Herod so disturbed when the Magi came and told him that there was a little boy who had been born who had been the prophetic king of the Jews? Well, as an appointed client king, he was obsessed with his legacy. He had three of his own sons killed, while three others were set up as his successors. He was pulling the strings in every way that he could. And now these Magi from the east show up claiming the king of the Jews had been born. Not only that, but he was a messianic king. In other words, one that people had been looking for for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years, foretold by God, and with his own star in the sky in some unusual constellation. The Magi's claim disturbed Herod because Jesus threatened his autonomy. Because of his relationship with Caesar, Herod's autonomy was never quite complete No one questioned his day-to-day authority in Jerusalem and in Israel itself, not even his sons. Herod had Jerusalem under his control, and Bethlehem was a quiet little backwater village until the Magi showed up. It's just that he wanted everything to stay that way with no threats. The arrival of Jesus is, is disturbing today to some, to those who simply want to keep the status quo and who fight all change. Jesus never fits into Herod's agenda or the agenda of other people who want to create their own legacy and are obsessed with that because he comes as the son of the most high God who steps into a world badly in need of change. He comes as the Messiah King 
who begins his work of transformation in human hearts. Jesus comes as a threat to all who rule over their own personal kingdoms and who want control over themselves and others. Herod would be so threatened that he would try to stamp out all of the young boys of Bethlehem's village in order to protect his sense of autonomy and control. So Jesus is a different king in that he threatens the self-interested. But then there's another group that's there, and we discover that he bores the self-important. And verse 4 says, When he, Herod, had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then Matthew quotes from the prophet uh, Micah in the Old Testament. He says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So think about this. When the Magi approached, he consulted with the religious professionals of the day. Matthew lists the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. The chief priests were in charge of all the religious practices in Jerusalem and all throughout Israel. The teachers of the law specialized in how the teaching was delivered to people in villages and homes and and how people learned about God's word. Together they knew the ins and the outs of all of what we would call the Old Testament, then the, the Jewish scriptures, all of its laws, all of its customs, all of its prophecies. This made it natural that King Herod would consult them and lead the Magi to them upon their arrival. If anyone knew what the prophets had written about the birthplace of the Messiah, this was the group of people who would know. So, the religious people, the experts, they took Herod and the Magi to this small little book in the Old Testament, Micah, and to two verses in chapter 5 of Micah's book. Verse 2 and verse 4, Micah was one of the prophets whose writing appears near the end of the Old Testament era. He wrote of the last days, the times when the Lord would act on on Israel's behalf. And so chapter 5 includes these two statements that actually say more than what Matthew quoted in his gospel. First they quote verse 2, which says, But you, Bethlehem of Phratha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, this prophecy spells out two specific details. The first is that a ruler or a king over all Israel would come from Bethlehem. The second was a riddle. The riddle was the part that Matthew didn't quote, but it's there in the Old Testament. A future ruler whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So, a future person with origins in ancient times. How do you put these two contrasting, conflicting ideas together. The riddle may have meant that this ruler would come from David's ancient line, some of them thought, but it seems there's more hidden in this riddle. It speaks of one with ancient origins. In other words, his own beginning was ancient, even though he's future. We know today that had to be the Son of God, who'd been involved in God's process in creating this world right from the beginning. And there are little glimpses of him that show up in the Old Testament scriptures, but now he's unveiled fully here in the Gospels. Verse 4 then indicates the character of this kind of ruler. He says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord 
in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So, what, what Micah was telling them was that this ruler would be a shepherd king, not a powerful king who'd come riding in on a horse and leading an army. He would shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Here's this prophecy written several hundred years before Jesus shows up. And it says that this ruler will speak in the majesty of the Lord's own name. Interesting that Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd who speaks in his father's name, who who knows the names of his sheep and who calls them. Yet the religious leaders knew these same scriptures and they never got curious enough about them to make the hike from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It was only about five or six miles. What a fascinating reality with the birth of Jesus happening so close by, yet we find there's no indication that any of these religious leaders, the chief priests or the teachers of the law, bothered to find their way to Bethlehem, but they sent the Magi there. They could quote scripture, but they didn't bother to investigate. They were too busy with other things to move beyond mere intellectual curiosity. See, what's interesting about Jesus is that Jesus may have all this grandeur to him, but he bores those who are self-important because their own agenda is more important to them than finding out whether God may be up to something in our world. Here's the simple idea that I want to get across tonight. The arrival of Jesus disturbs our sense of self-importance and demands allegiance to Jesus, the shepherd king. So, not only does he threaten those who are self-interested and bore those who are self-important, we find one more important detail about him. He attracts the open-hearted. Verse 9 says, after they had heard from the king, in other words, these are the magi, these guys who had come from the east following this constellation they had seen in the sky, After they'd heard from the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The Magi are an interesting class of people. The traditional view holds that they came from Iran where they studied world religions, the Old Testament scriptures, and the stars as well. Because their wisdom was sought in regard to future rulers, they were considered to be kingmakers in their culture. They believed that God gave celestial signs whenever he was about to to make some big move in the world. And an unusual star had led them to conclude that a great king of the Jewish people had been born in Israel. This celestial body was so great that it disturbed their schedule, and they journeyed to find him. They left their comfort zone. Here we see the contrast between these three reactions to Jesus' birth. The self-interested are disturbed and see Christmas as a threat. The self-important viewed Christmas as a trivial pursuit that wasn't worth their time. They were not disturbed enough or curious enough to walk five miles in order to check out the very thing they were sending the Magi to do. But the truth seekers, the Magi, altered their patterns to study, to journey, to consider. They start at the margins of God's people 
and were driven by this search for a king and that moved them into the middle of what God was doing. Here we see four responses of the curious seen through the actions of the Magi. They leave their comfort zone. They seek and ask questions about the scriptures in order to understand more. And when they see Jesus, they bow down and worship and they open their treasures. The Bible never explains what the treasures are there for, but many have surmised that some of these uh, substances that were given, the myrrh and the frankincense and the gold, were the spices that were used in order to perfume Jesus' body when they laid him to rest in that tomb. The arrival of Jesus disturbs our sense of self-importance, yet it demands allegiance to Jesus as the shepherd king who comes to serve others. I find that Christmas invites us to join the curious. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, verse 1 says, in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The first danger with Christmas is that we could be like Herod. He built harbors and buildings and he built a name for himself too, but he was ruthlessly self-interested and self-absorbed to the point of killing his own sons so that they wouldn't be a threat. King Jesus wasn't anything like King Herod. The second danger is that we could emulate the religious leaders of that day. They knew the Bible, but they were too bored to check out what God might be doing around them. If history didn't unfold according to their mindset, their worldview, they were dismissive. There are many people who are dismissive of Jesus today, even as the world stops to think about the very passages of Scripture we are looking at. If the God of the universe really sent his son to us, that is anything but boring. It's the best news in the history of the world. And so the Magi present for us a better way. They were curious. They studied to see if what they found was true. Not to find loopholes and reasons to reject it, but to find if there was enough reason to believe. And in doing so, they moved out of their comfort zones. They determined to see with their own eyes. And then they bowed down and they worshipped Jesus. And they opened their treasures before him. God is a gift at Christmas. God's greatest gift to you and to me is Jesus. It is the ultimate Christmas gift. He is the ultimate Christmas gift. What is your Christmas gift to God? Your greatest gift to God may be to bow down and worship him and to learn more and follow his son Jesus. Why? The arrival of Jesus disturbs our sense of self-importance. If you're disturbed about what I'm saying, you're in good company. This is part of what Christmas is supposed to do. But it also demands our allegiance to Jesus, the shepherd king who came not only to serve God, but to serve his people and to call us home. I hope you'll consider all of this. And I'm really thrilled that you have uh, taken the time to allow us to add uh, some spiritual impact to the way that you and your family and your friends celebrate Christmas this year. We're going to conclude this service by singing Silent Night and hopefully you picked up a candle on the way in. 
And uh, just some real quick instructions. Our team is going to come out and uh, they're going to lead us in singing this. But when you light your candle, there are a couple of uh, candles on the side that we're going to light off of. Turn your candles sideways. Don't make the other turn their candle for you. And at the end of singing Silent Night, would you put your hand behind it and blow them out so that uh, we all do that at once and we're not walking through the crowd with lit candles together. We're so, so glad that you're here. And I hope that you have a wonderful Christmas Day tomorrow.